Number one, we all like food. In fact, some people say that as a nation, we're a bit obsessed about food. I'm not quite sure about that, but uh, we all like food, and, and this passage is, is about food. The other thing we like is anything that is free. Yeah? <laughs> when we buy something in the shops, we bargain down as much as we can, and then after that, there's one final card to play. We've got free gift or not. <laughs> and today in our passage, we read not only about food, but about free food. And that's enough to get any Malaysian sitting up straight and listening carefully to the sermon. But before we get to that bit about free food, let me remind you of some background of where we're up to in Luke's Gospel. Throughout Luke's Gospel, we've seen Jesus teaching and preaching and healing. We've seen the, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the, the, the mute speak. And we've seen that all of this is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah 35 that we looked at a few weeks ago show us this is what was going to happen when God would come to save and rule His people. Jesus Himself had pointed to these things, you may recall, when John the Baptist asked Him, or sent people to ask Him, whether He really was the one. We've also seen Jesus dealing with demons, driving them out from the people that they were afflicting, also in fulfillment of the Old Testament, which speaks of the time when God would come and, and save His people from bondage. And so Jesus would later say in chapter 11, verse 20, that if by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God is upon you. These are signs that the kingdom was about to dawn. And then in these last few weeks, we've seen even more. We've seen Jesus calm the storm and controlling weather, which is something that Old Testament shows only God can do. We've seen Jesus cast out not just one demon, but a legion of demons, which means a few thousand of them from one man. We've seen Jesus not just deal with blindness and deafness and lameness, but with chronic uncleanness and even death in the case of the widow's son and Jairus' daughter. And so Jesus has been showing the greatness of his power in an even bigger way than before. And today we see another example of that. But before we get there, we see another way that the work of Jesus is growing. Jesus, in verse 1 of uh, chapter 9, calls his 12 disciples together. These are the apostles, the sent ones. They had been specially appointed as apostles back in chapter 6. Their number, 12, was significant because they are the nucleus of the new Israel. And Jesus was going to send them out on a mission, a short-term mission. Later on, he's going to send out others, uh, but today it's just the twelve. And he gives them the power and authority to do the very same things that he had been doing. Jesus, we remember, has authority over demons. They, they tremble before him, and he commands them to leave people, and they have to obey him. And, and now he gives these twelve that authority. Jesus has power to cure diseases. And over and over again, we've seen uh, people healed in Luke's gospel with just a word or a touch. And, and now he gives these 12 the power to cure diseases. And so they would do at least some of those amazing things that Jesus was doing. And him giving them the power and authority, 
in verse 2, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They were to preach the kingdom, to say the kingdom is very, very near. God has come to save and rule his people. And they were to heal. They were to do the things that Jesus had demonstrated in light of the Old Testament that the kingdom was near. But this time, instead of just one person doing it, we have 12 people doing it. And suddenly, the ministry was going to multiply. And the impact on that region around Galilee would be even greater. Now, this sending out of the 12 is not meant to be a model for all missions. Ah, for example, at different times, Jesus would give different specific instructions. We can't make what's happening here a rule for all time. But let's see what Jesus wanted them to do this time. On this mission, the emphasis is traveling light. Verse 3, he says, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't have two tunics. Now, I don't know about you, but when I travel, I like to make sure I have my credit card, emergency cash, and a phone that I can call anywhere with. And if I'm doing mission work, oh, I like to take a laptop and probably my printer as well for a last-minute printing of my sermon. And, but these guys, these guys are going out with essentially nothing but the clothes on their back. They don't know where they're going to stay. Well, they know it's not going to be a hotel because they don't have money to pay for it. They will go, actually, in verse 4, to a house. Uh, presumably, Jesus is so famous now around that region of Galilee that they could come to a town and could reasonably expect that someone would be willing to host one of the people that he sent. And if you find a house, Jesus says to them, don't go looking for a better one. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. But what if you get to a house, or you get to a town, and there's nobody who wants you? The people don't want you to be there. What do you do? What if you get to a town, and there's people who have heard about Jesus, but there's no one who's who's willing to look after the apostles and give them a bed and, and give them a base. And, well, verse 5, And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what does this mean? Well, when the Jews went to a Gentile place, they would shake off the dust from their feet before they walked back into the Jewish place so as not to you know, pollute the Jewish place. Here, if a Jewish town rejects the apostles, that's what they were meant to do. That they were to consider them, in a sense, Gentile, even though they were ethnically Jewish. Because they had rejected the ambassadors of Israel's Messiah. As the Apostle Paul would later put it, not all Israel is Israel. And the true Israel are those who accept the King of Israel, the Lord Jesus. And that helps us to understand why the apostles had to go empty-handed. Because if they had money, well, they could go to a hotel. They could buy their food, or they could eat what they brought. But without that, then they are vulnerable. They depend on people in the village that they go to. And this forces the people of the town or the village to, to make a decision to decide whether they want them or not. 
And if they want them, someone will have to put them up. And if they don't, then they'll have to go on to a different town. They've got no choice. They can't stay there by themselves. And so the decision about whether to accept the ministry of the apostles will be made by the people of the town. And to reject the apostles' ministry, they wouldn't need to be hostile. All they would need to do is be indifferent, to fail to help. And if they did that, they would live with the consequences of their decision. And they would not be considered as part of the kingdom. And friends, it's a bit like that for us, isn't it? Let's not put ourselves in the position of the apostles here. We're, we're more like the people in the villages and the towns. And we need to decide whether we'll accept the ministry of the apostles that Jesus appointed as his representatives. The ones whose message we have here in the New Testament. The ones whose message is proclaimed week after week here. And we'll need to decide whether we're going to embrace them and their message and contribute in whatever way we can for this message to go out or to just ignore it. We don't have to be antagonistic to reject the message. We just have to be apathetic. We don't have to hate Jesus and his messengers to, to lose out on being in the kingdom. We just have to be indifferent. Will we or won't we embrace the apostles and help in practical ways with the spread of their message? For people in those towns, the practical way they could help was what? To provide food and lodging for the apostles as they delivered the message. What kind of practical things can you and I do for the spread of the gospel? Just have a think. What's something that you already do? And if there isn't something that you already do, what's one thing that you could start doing? Just give you a moment to think about it. You, you might want to write it down anonymously on a blue card. Or you might want to talk about it with each other at morning tea later. Well, the apostles received their commission from Jesus. And in verse 6, they depart. They go through the villages, village after village. They preach the gospel. They declare the coming of the kingdom. And they heal everywhere to show that kingdom coming in Old Testament terms. They do what Jesus tells them. and They get on with the mission. And presumably, enough people in enough towns take them in for the mission to, to be worthwhile. Now, if Jesus himself made a mark on, that, on those little towns in that Galilee region, imagine what stir that 12 people will be causing. In fact, there's so much of a stir that the news goes back to Herod. Now, Herod, now we're on our next point, Herod is sometimes called King Herod, uh, and that's okay because he functionally rules as king, uh, though he's a puppet king, he's controlled by the Romans. Uh, technically, he's known as a tetrarch, a ruler of quarter of the kingdom because his father's divided the kingdom into four. And that's what Luke calls him here, verse 7. 
Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. He's going, what's going on here? Right? He can see something pretty amazing is happening in his territory. It's making a big impact on the area that he's governing and he can't understand it. Different people are coming with different stories. And they have different theories as to what's going on. In verse 7 we read that it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Now that would be a bit disconcerting, wouldn't it? Right? Because Herod had put John to death. On the other hand, in verse 8, some were saying that Elijah had appeared. Uh, remember the Old Testament says that before God brings judgment on Israel, God is going to send Elijah to them to warn them. So Elijah was going to come. Could this be the one? On the other hand, in verse 8, by, others were saying that one of the prophets of old had risen. wonder who that one might be. Well, Herod wants to find out for himself. He says in verse 9, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this? Who is this? That's, that's the big question, isn't it? Who is this? And Luke purposely reports us, tells us that Herod asked this question. He purposely tells us here because he wants us to keep asking that question, especially as we prepare for next week, where we get the answer. Who is this? Who is Jesus? And to find out, verse 9, Herod seeks to see him. He wants to meet Jesus. Now, we don't know how he tries to do that, but we know he's not successful. He's not going to meet Jesus until the day of the crucifixion, where Jesus is going to be sent to him as part of the trial. And we read in Luke's Gospel at that point that he's very happy to meet Jesus, but then I think he'd be disappointed because at that stage we find out the reason that he wants, he thinks Jesus might perform some, some miracles for him, do some tricks. But of course, Jesus is not going to do anything like that, is he? And there will be people here who are still working out the answer to that question, who is Jesus? Thank you for coming. Like Herod, you might think, oh, it would be really nice to see Jesus. Sort it out with him directly. You, know? you kind of hope Jesus is going to do some trick or some miracle specifically for you. Ah, then you believe. But that's a bit like Herod, isn't it? Our connection to Jesus comes via the apostles and their writings. And the New Testament actually is the place to get the information on Jesus to work out how to answer that question. Luke, for example, has interviewed the eyewitnesses. He's put his book together and he said so that we can have certainty. We don't need fresh data. We don't need new miracles. All the data we need to make that decision is here. Got to read it. So, Jesus is now... Um, okay, let's go back to the passage. Next point. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Right? Having taken us to, to King Herod, uh, Luke brings us back to Jesus and the apostles. Right, the mission trip's over. We're not given much detail about it. Uh, we're not told how it went, although though Jesus is told in verse 10, they, they tell Jesus all they've done. And how does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 10 again, he takes them to withdraw apart to a town called Bethsaida. 
Right? He takes them apart. Let's withdraw. Uh, Bethsaida is a coastal town on the Sea of Galilee, so he might be going there or the area around it. And the, play, and the plan is to rest together after a, a grueling mission. But the crowd, well, they have other ideas. News about where they're going must have leaked out. Because in verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And how do you think Jesus responds? Give me a break. You know, can't you let the man have a little rest? We've just had a big mission. No, no, no. Look what, he's, look what, he, look what it says in verse 11. He welcomed them. He welcomed them. There's Jesus and his disciples, worn out after a heavy mission. And when the people come to Jesus, he welcomes them. Because that's what he's like, isn't it? And friends, when we come to Jesus, we can always know that we will be welcomed. Because that's what he's like. Jesus welcomes the crowd, and in verse 11, he speaks to them of the kingdom of God, and he cures those who have need of healing. He's doing his thing again. He's preaching the kingdom, he's healing the sick, and he's doing this most of the day. And now it's evening, and the apostles, they have a concern. Verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countrysides to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. This seems to be genuine concern, isn't it, for these people? But look how Jesus answers in verse 13. He says, You give them something to eat. Oh, now that's a little bit difficult, isn't it, for the disciples to do? I mean, they've, they've been given authority to heal and to, and to cast out demons, and, that, and that, that's okay, but, but this is different. And, and they protest, saying, look, we, we, don't, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. There are so many people and so little food. Unless, they say, unless we go and buy food for all these people, <laughs> even if they can find a place to get food for all these people, can they afford it? Verse 14 tells us there are 5,000 men. And once you add the women and the children, who knows how many there's going to be? Where are they going to get food for this crowd? Now, here comes the bit about free food. Right, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 14, have them sit in groups of about 50 each. So that's what they do. People sit down in obedience. So they've got about, a, you've got about 100 groups about 50. Massive crowd. 100 groups of 50. Can you imagine that? And all eyes are on Jesus. And he takes these five loaves and two fish and he looks up to heaven. He blesses them, which is a Jewish shorthand for saying he blesses God for providing them. Well, the typical Jewish blessing goes like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread come from the earth and who provides for all you have created. And then he breaks the loaves and he gives it to the disciples to set before the crowd. Gives some food to each of the disciples to go and distribute and they distribute to one group and they come back for more and they do it again 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 and again and again and again and again until the whole crowd is eaten. And this is not a snack to keep people going until they get a proper meal. 
Uh, verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. And when they go and collect the leftovers, there are 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. That's in verse 17. So much more at the end than there was at the beginning. Now let me say, you can tell these are Jews and not Malaysians, because if they were Malaysians, there won't be any leftovers, they all tap out. <laughs> but here's Jesus, miraculously fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And the way Luke writes the last sentence in the Greek, he structures it so that the emphasis falls on the last word, which is the number 12. The leftover things were picked up by them, the baskets of, of fragments, 12. One basket for, for each of the 12 apostles who were helping. Or perhaps more importantly, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. For we've seen earlier that the true Israel is determined by people's response to Jesus and the apostles. And now we see that Jesus, through his apostles, is abundantly able to care for and provide for Israel. Just as God, through Moses, had provided for them in the wilderness. Remember, 1,500 years before this, God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, hadn't he? He was bringing them to the promised land. He brought them through the desert, and they had no food. But God looked after them. God provided for them in extraordinary ways. He, he gave them manna from heaven. And by doing that, he showed that their survival was not dependent on their abilities, but, but entirely on him. And he is the one who provided for them. And here in the New Testament, we see echoes of that experience as, as Jesus miraculously feeds the crowd. But it's not just the Exodus that reminds us of. Remember our Old Testament reading with, with Elisha, where he, where he fed that little crowd in the wilderness? And we saw in the first part of our reading that Elisha was Elijah's successor, isn't it? He was given a double portion of Elijah's spirit, so presumably he's twice as great as Elijah. And remember this feeding miracle? What does he start with? He starts with 20 loaves and some heads of new grain. How many people did he feed? Anyone remember? Hundred. Was that a miracle? Oh, yeah, yes, it was. They all ate well and they had some left over. But compare that miracle with Jesus' miracle. He fed a hundred people, that's two times fifty, with twenty loaves. Jesus fed more than five thousand people, that's a hundred times fifty, with five loaves and twelve baskets left over. What does that show? At the very least, it shows that Jesus is so much greater than Elisha, doesn't it? And if Elisha is greater than Elijah, oh, Jesus is so much greater than Elijah as well. Remember what people were saying about Jesus? Some people thought that he was Elijah. But Jesus is so much greater than that. He is. They've made him too small. And then some people thought he was John the Baptist. But you remember, in recent weeks, we've seen that John the Baptist, 
the Elijah figure that is promised in the Old Testament is actually John the Baptist. And if Jesus is so much greater than Elijah, then he's so much greater than John as well. He's so much bigger than all these alternatives that the Herod has been considering. So the question is, if all of Herod's options are wrong, then who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that's what, that's what Luke is leaving us with that question. In fact, that's the question that's been asked over and over again in these chapters of Luke that we've been looking at in this series. It seems to be the main theme from Luke 7 to this point. In the next passage, we will look at next week, Jesus asks that question himself and Peter gives an answer. And the tension that's been building up over the last how many weeks is going to be resolved. And today's passage is like that climax in the lead up to it. Now, we don't want to take away the thunder from next week's talk. Uh, so let's just look at what we see from this passage about who is Jesus. What have we seen? Well, we've seen Jesus is the one who doesn't just preach the kingdom and doesn't just perform the signs that show the kingdom is coming. He's the one who can delegate the power and authority to do that to, to others as well. And here he delegates it to his apostles, just like God sent the prophets in the Old Testament to speak on his behalf. Jesus sends the apostles. We've also seen that Jesus is the one who feeds his people in the desert, like, like God fed Israel in the wilderness in days gone by. We've seen he's the one who's greater than, than Elisha, who's greater than Elijah, therefore greater than John the Baptist. But the other place where the Old Testament helps us is also in Ezekiel chapter 34. And in Ezekiel 34, we read about the shepherds of Israel. They are the leaders of God's people who don't feed him, don't feed God's people. They just look after themselves. In fact, they mistreat God's people in Ezekiel 34. They are people a bit like Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And God said that he would punish these shepherds and that God himself would come and feed his people. And then it says that his servant David will feed them. David being the great Old Testament king, the ancestor of, of Jesus whose life pointed forward to him. And so in the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus here also as both God come to care for his people and the true king, the son of David, who feeds them as their shepherd. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God come to save and rule his people. Jesus is the Lord who provides for his people. In our passage today, his people were in that wilderness, getting hungry but without food, and the disciples were actually right on one level. No one could realistically provide it for them, but Jesus did. He provided for his people. And the most important thing that he provides for us is not literal food in the desert, but salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. We could not provide these for ourselves, and, and no one else could provide it for us either. But Jesus, the Good Shepherd, did that 
by dying for our sins in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and by rising again from the dead as our king and this provision is pictured in the Old Testament as a meal which God provides we enjoy the taste of it now but we enjoy the fullness of it at the end of the age we read about it in Isaiah 25 on this mountain on this mountain Mount Zion where Jerusalem is the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine of, of rich food full of marrow of aged wine full well refined he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken and friends that is the real feast the feast that the feeding that we read about today is, is just a pointer, a shadow. The feast that God provides for His people, that banquet that, that you and I can enjoy forever. The free food that we really want. And Jesus has done everything for you and I to be part of that final feast. He has died for our sins, He has risen again, and He invites us into His kingdom. But like that, those people in those towns of Galilee, we have to decide whether to accept the ministry of Jesus and His apostles or not. To reject it, we don't have to be hostile. All we need to do is be indifferent or apathetic. And if we do that, we, we live with the consequences of our decision and we won't be in the kingdom will you believe in Jesus will you help his cause and come to the feast or will you be indifferent and apathetic and so be left out choose we must and we must choose choose wisely let's pray father we thank you that the Lord Jesus is our good shepherd and loving King thank you that he has provided for us what we need that he has died for our sins to save us and that he welcomes all who trust in him into his kingdom we thank you that we have tasted your goodness in the forgiveness he has won for us and that by your grace we will enjoy the, the fullness of your banquet at the end with him forever We pray, Father, that your spirit would so move among us today that all of us here are receptive to your gospel. And then instead of being apathetic or indifferent, we play our role in promoting the spread of this message, whatever that role may be.
May we be faithful in serving our true King and wonderful Saviour, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.